it is great to be back from the land of Israel, to be back here with you this weekend. Uh, we had about 48 people from Hope that took the trip. Uh, I think if you were to talk to them, they would say it, it's a life-changing trip. And some of you have been asking me when's the next trip, and so we've actually already booked it. It's uh, November 1st, 2019, so you got about a year and a half. If you cut it down to one cup of Starbucks a day, I think you'll be able to save enough money. You can probably go on the trip, okay? So we'll just save that date, uh, November 1st, 2019, for about 11 or 12 days, and uh, we're going to have a great time, and we'll be giving you, you more information about that. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to be in a series that we're calling Origin Story. It is based on the first five books of the Bible. So let's just take a test. Let's see how many of us can name the first five books of the Bible. I'll, I'll help you a little bit. The first one's Genesis. Okay, I'll give you these ones. So here we go. Genesis. I am so proud of you guys. And they say we're not a smart church. Okay, so we're going to be doing this series over the next five weeks. And we're going to take one book a week. And we're going to give an overview, a survey of the book. I'm going to show you how it fits into the other four books. I'm also going to show you how it fits into all of Scripture. And you're going to begin to see where we are, the beginning of our, or the origin of our story of how we now have this relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ. So it is going to be in survey fashion. It's going to be a little bit more teaching than maybe we're used to because that's okay because it's summertime and all the foo-foo fluffy people are at the beach see but those of us who love Jesus we're here and we're ready to dig into the meat of God's word right by the way somebody asked me this past week you know why we're we actually doing this series because they heard a pastor who's a very prominent pastor and I love this guy by the way but he made a comment that says you know once you're a Christian you can pretty much just ignore the Old Testament don't even worry about the Old Testament well if that's the case why are we studying this why are we doing this series and it's simply this you cannot appreciate the New Testament you cannot appreciate the new covenant that Jesus ushered in unless you can get your grasp, get a grasp on the Old Testament and the harshness and the heaviness and the weightiness of the law that we've been saved from. It's kind of like shopping for a diamond. You know, you can't really appreciate a diamond. You wouldn't be able to appreciate it if you went to a, to a jewelry store and they, they just kind of got a diamond out and dropped it down on the glass countertop. They don't do that, right? They got the lights just right. They get that black piece of velvet. They put it down and then they take that diamond, they set it down. And, and the blackness of that velvet cloth, it emphasizes the brilliance. It emphasizes the beauty of the diamond. And you're going to see it in the next few weeks. The darkness, the heaviness, the weightiness of the Old Testament highlights the beauty and the brilliance of what Jesus Christ did for us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So this weekend, we're gonna start our series. Uh, we're gonna overview or survey the book of Genesis. If you've ever read the book of Genesis, it has 50 chapters. I hope you brought a snack. No, I'm just kidding. I'm gonna get you out of here on time. But I'm hoping just to whet your appetite enough so that you'll go home this week and read the book of Genesis, 50 chapters. It's about seven chapters a day. Spend a little less time on social media. You ought to be able to knock this out. I want to begin by just giving you some basic information about the book. In fact, let's start with the meaning of the name Genesis. You may or may not know it, but when the Bible was written, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. And so it may surprise you to know that Genesis, here we have a Hebrew book, but it actually has a Greek title. And this Greek title was given around 250 BC by a group of 70 scholars. They put together a translation uh, of the Bible known as the Septuagint. And these 70 scholars, they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek because that was the language of the day. People were speaking Greek. They were communicating in Greek. So they translated the Hebrew into Greek. And in doing so, 
They chose the name from the Greek verb ganao. And it's a word that's translated in the New Testament, birth or beginning. In fact, you can find the same word, ganao, you can find it in Matthew, you can find it in Luke, referring to the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. But this word Genesis means origin. It means beginning. I, although we teach from the NIV, the New International Version, I think they actually did the poorest job of translating this. They translate the word account. But it really is the idea of giving birth to something or starting something. And that's a fitting title because you're going to see that it's traced through the entire scope of this book. Let me just give you some examples. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account, or this is the origin. This is the beginning of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and heavens. And you can read about how it unfolded in chapter 1. Chapter 2. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 says this. This is the written account, or this is, this is the origin. This is the beginning of Adam's family line. So here we have the beginning of the Adam's family. So you didn't know it. It all goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. You get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account. This is the beginning. This is the origin of Noah and his family. Noah is one of the heroes in the book of Genesis. But this, this is the beginning of his genealogy. This traces his roots. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, this is the account or the birth or the origin of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These are the sons of Noah. I'll say a great deal about these guys later on. But things really get interesting when you get to Genesis chapter 25. This is the account, the beginning, the origin of the family line of Abraham's son, Ishmael. And you're going to learn that from Ishmael, we got the Arab race. But then when you get down to verse 19, it says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. And through Isaac, we got the Jewish race. So think about it. Here in Genesis chapter 25, a great example. We have the beginning of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 25. That's why I smile every time we get a new president and they say, we're going we're to strive to get peace in the Middle East. I'm kind of like, let me know how that works out for you. Because this has been going on for five, 6,000 years. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 25. You can read about it. Now, why am I taking you through this process? It's because, see, I want you to see that the major emphasis through the book of Genesis, it never, ever changes. This is the genesis of, this is the birth of, these are the roots are of, this is the beginning of, this is the account of. This is where it all starts. So think about it this way. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. Whatever begins, begins right here in the book of Genesis. In fact, I made a list. It's the beginning of prophecy. It's the beginning of sin. It's the beginning of man. It's the beginning of time. It's the beginning of matter. It's the beginning of the purpose, the direction, the plan of God. It's the beginning of the family. It's the beginning of the husband-wife relationship. It's the beginning of judgment. It's the beginning of the Messiah. We're going to see that in just a minute. It all starts right here in the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis fits into the first five books of the Bible, and you may have seen it in the title. It's referred to as the Pentateuch. Penta means five. Tuk comes from a word, tukos, which means tool. Literally, it's the idea of something that's useful. And so when you put it together, literally, Pentateuch means the five useful books. The Jews refer to it as the Torah. You may have heard that word. We often refer, refer to it as the law. Uh, Moses seems to have been the writer of these five books. In fact, the Old Testament and the New Testament has several references directly and indirectly that Moses wrote this. And since Moses wrote Genesis, he obviously had to get his revelation from God himself because 
He wasn't even around yet. So God had to reveal to him, inspire him what to write. So that gives you a little bit of background. Let's get into the book itself. Let's overview the book. Uh, what do you say we begin with Genesis chapter one, verse one? Doesn't that seem like a good place to start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now understand, this goes back to a time when there was absolutely nothing except the Godhead. There's no universe, there's, no, not, there's not even matter. There's just infinity past. And you know, we can't wrap our brains around that. I mean, have you ever tried to think, okay, before God created, God was still around. So where did he come from? You just can't even wrap your head around this. We can't fathom, we can't understand eternity. And it's because everything in our world is related to touch and smell and taste and sound and sight. But you gotta understand, God dwelt when there was absolutely nothing. And it tells us in Genesis 1 that it was there by his infinite word that he created matter, that he spoke the world into existence. Now, let me just say this. When it comes to creation, uh, people have a lot of different thoughts, a lot of different ideas. Uh, some people believe in a young earth. They believe that when God used this word day in Genesis chapter one, that he was talking about a literal 24 hour period of time. And as a result, they will conclude that it's a young earth. The earth is somewhere between 10 and 20,000 years old. And if you fall into that category, that's great. That's great. God is omnipotent. God can do anything he wants to do. If he wanted to speak it into existence in the six days, he could certainly do this. In fact, I told my wife, what if this is really the first day of all existence and God just set it up to make us think? We've been around for a long time. So you can do anything he wants to do, right? Right. Now, others, doo -doo -doo, others still believe in creation, but they believe in an older earth. Uh, they believe that when God used this word day, he was referring to literally, quote, an era of time, because in the Hebrew, that's what this word day actually means. You can see an example of this in Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day. It means an era of time that has just gone by. Now understand, those who believe this still believe that God created it all. They just believe that God used microevolution in the process in order that we ended up with this incredible planet, this earth that we get to live on today. And if you fall into that category, that's great too because we can definitely come together whether you believe in a young earth or whether you believe in an old earth as long as we can believe that there's a God who's a creator who's behind it all. By the way, even Darwin who wrote The Origin of Species in 1859 believed that there was a creator behind it all. In fact, this is a quote from his book. Therefore, I should infer from analogy that probably all the organic beings which have ever lived upon this earth have descended from one primordial form into which life was first breathed by the creator. Notice the capital C. So even, even Darwin was thinking, if this is true, and he didn't even know if his theory was true, and we don't know if his theory is true. But he says, even if it is true, that first life cell had to come from somewhere. It had to come from a creator. However it unfolded, it says in Genesis 1:31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. In other words, God stepped back and looked at creation and this is what he thought, crushed it, <laughs> crushed it, perfection, all here, nothing can be added. And then when you get to chapter two, we zoom in on the creative work of the sixth day and this is when God created mankind. This is when God created Adam. You remember it says in chapter one, verse 26, let us, by the way, you should bring your Bible during this series because you're gonna wanna circle words, you're gonna wanna make notes, but that's the first reference to the Trinity in the Bible. Genesis 1, 26, let us, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, let us make mankind in our image. And so you know the story, God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it says, Adam became a living soul. 
And then God provided Adam with a place to live. You can read about it in chapter two, verse eight. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. I am confident that it was an unbelievable place. In my mind, it's like Hawaii without the earthquakes. Okay, just lush, productive, beautiful. I mean, it was fruitful. Everything Adam could have possibly wanted, you know. He says, you can eat from it. You can drink from the rivers. It is all yours. It would have never been polluted if Adam and Eve hadn't messed up. Not only that, he said, hey, I've got another job for you. I want you to name the animals. And I'm sure Adam was like, what do I name them? God's like, that's your problem. That's your job. That's your responsibility. So I don't know. Adam whistles and all the animals line up and he names all the animals. But God put him in the garden. God gave him a job. Now, when we think about the Garden of Eden, we have no idea what the terrain was like. We have no idea what the atmospheric conditions were like. But think about this. We know at this point, we know that the earth wasn't watered from rain. It never rained until the flood, and that's a few chapters later. So how did it get watered? Where chapter two, verse six tells us, streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So, I mean, we've got a perfect paradise. We don't even have rainy days on Monday that always get us down. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it is a perfect paradise, and it is all for Adam. Enjoy, Adam. It's all yours. But then God begins to observe Adam, and he comes to this conclusion it is not good for him to be by himself. Now, we don't know why. We don't know if he's swinging through the trees with the monkeys, running with scissors in his hands, his shoelaces untied, eating candy constantly. We don't know what's going on, right? But God says, it's not good. And so he made the woman. And now all of a sudden, we have companionship. We have intimacy. It's all in the state of innocence. But think about this. All of that beauty, all of the ecstasy, all of the delight of creation suddenly comes crashing down into dust when you get to chapter three, because for the very first time, Satan arrives on the scene in the form of a serpent. Unfortunately, the story's too familiar to be fresh, but the serpent spoke to Eve. She listened, and you'll notice the very first prediction in the Bible, this is a prediction, is in chapter two, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. How about that? Adam lived in a time where there was only one rule. Wouldn't you like to live in a world where there was only one rule? Not even 10 commandments, one rule. God's like, one rule. Can you just do one thing? Can you just obey one rule? You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And we've certainly talked about this verse, and we talked about why there's evil and why there's so much pain in the world. It goes back to this verse. But you got to understand, that was a prediction in the form of a warning. And in perfect form, man ignored everything he could ever have possibly wanted, and he went for the one thing he could not have. Chapter three, verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, she ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And this is why you should bring your Bible, because right here in my notes, in my margin, I have written, idiot. <laughs> idiot. One rule. One rule. It's all yours. Just, just stay away from that tree. Don't eat from that tree. Now, why would they do that? Nobody really knows. We could say it's the nature of man. We could say it's the curiosity of man. Let's not be too tough on Adam and Eve. We do the same thing every day. We have all kinds of rules here. God says, don't, don't, don't. But we think we can do, do, do. And it doesn't impact us whatsoever. Right? So we can't be too hard on these guys. But the result was tragic. And I think it's interesting. The very first thing they do is they cover up. Have you ever wondered why? They don't have kids to walk in on them yet. Ever had that happen? Don't raise your hand. But anyway, that's another story. 
Kids don't come for two more chapters. Why are they covering up? It's just them. I mean, are the monkeys pointing and giggling? Are the hyenas laughing? I, mean, I don't know what's going on, but they cover up. Understand, before this, there was absolute innocence, no shame whatsoever, right? And it's because they weren't self-conscious. But think about this. When sin was issued into the human race or, or, or introduced to the human race, it brought on self-consciousness. So it says in chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And I think we have this idea of God's walking through the garden and looking behind trees and under bushes, like, where are you guys? You know, literally, this is what it says in the Hebrew, why are you where you are? In other words, you've never been where you are before. You've never hid from me before. Why are you where you are? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. By the way, these are all new emotions for Adam. He's never been afraid before. He's never been ashamed before. He's never been self-conscious before. And then it says in chapter, 11, chapter 3, verse 11, And he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And as a result, the curse came. It was kind of the beginning of the end. I mean, you have to go back. What did, what did God say in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17? When you eat from it, you will certainly die, meaning spiritually you will die instantly because the relationship God is saying between me and you is going to be severed. But not only that, you're going to begin the process of dying physically. I mean, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would have lived forever, right? But God's righteous. God is holy. So he has to deal with sin. He deals with the serpent in chapter 3, verse 14. Curse are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And to this day, snakes are one of the most hated, despised creatures out there, right? I live in 12 Oaks. Every time somebody finds a snake, they have to take a picture of it and post it on our Facebook page, right? I mean, people, oh, snake, snake. Well, anyway, he deals with the woman in chapter 3, verse 16. I live in a neighborhood with a bunch of sissies, I'll be honest. But anyway, he deals with the, the, the woman in chapter 3, verse 16. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So understand the curse includes the whole problem of giving birth, the pain connected with it. We've talked about the fact that it includes the struggle between men and women. It says, ladies, you're going to want to rule over him, but he's going to want to rule over you. In fact, the word desire that this will be your desire is the Hebrew word teshua. It means to be independent from and to dominate. That's going to be your desire. That's what you're going to want to do. But God says it's not going to happen. He's going to rule over you. Now understand, this is, God's not saying he's happy about it. In fact, this isn't the way God planned it. He's saying, this is what you brought on yourself. This is part of the curse. He gives man the curse in chapter 3, verse 17, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you. You must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. By the way, let me make something clear. Work is not the curse. I pointed out for a reason that God immediately gave Adam a job. He put him to work. He said, take care of the garden. Name the animals. You got a job to do. It's not work that's the curse. It's the sweat of work. It's the anxiety of labor. It's the hardship of trying to hold down an occupation. So he curses man. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And, and, and you ought to go home and mark this in your Bible. This is what it says. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. You know, when you go to the movies, you go to see the main attraction, but you have to sit through the previews of coming attractions for 20, 25 minutes. It just seems like it's getting longer and longer. You know what this is in chapter 3, verse 21? This is a preview of a coming attraction. This is what it's saying. For your sin and shame to be covered, blood's going to have to be shed. Something's going to have to die. 
And this is the first hint we get that thousands of years later, Jesus is going to come to this earth, born to you in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And it's good news for all people. It began right here. This is where God's redemptive plan began. Now, let me tell you why the Bible is so amazing. The Bible, don't think of the Bible as a book. It's actually a collection of 66 books. These 66 books were written by 40 different writers over a span, get this now, of 1,400 years. These guys didn't live in the same neighborhood. You know, they weren't in a fraternity together. You know, they written over 1,400 years over three continents spanning and including three different languages. So there was no way there could be any coercion going on here. But the theme of the Bible is the very same from the beginning all the way to end. God created man in a relationship with him. Man screwed up the relationship. The rest of the Bible is about God's endless pursuit to restore us and reconcile us back into a relationship with God. One of the best evidences I know that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But the Messiah, Jesus coming as a savior begins right here. Well, Adam and Eve, they're cast out of the garden. A guard is placed there so they can never enter into it again. Let's move to chapter five. Do you remember when God made man, he made him in his likeness. He made him in his image. And we are still in the likeness of God. But I want you to notice something. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. Now notice this. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son, uh-oh, in his own likeness, in his own image. Now, this is Seth, and he's still in the image of God, but all of a sudden, he carries the characteristics of his father. This is the first sign of depravity. This is the first hint that sin has entered into the bloodstream of the human race. Adam was made in God's likeness, but understand, when Seth came along, although he was in the likeness of God, he was also in the likeness of his daddy, because now he's a sinner, too. Well, of course, the it's tragic, incredible depravity, all the fallout of rebellion. So you get to chapter six, God appraises mankind. And this is what he says, only six chapters into the Bible, verse five, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. By the way, let me just say, when you read the book of Genesis, you get a brand new appreciation for the sovereignty of God. And sovereignty simply means God can do whatever he wants to do. But you also get a brand new appreciation for the holiness of God, because you're going to see it in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. God don't play. He doesn't mess around. However, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that begins the whole story of the flood. And, I, and I'm amazed at the strange ideas that people have about the flood that, you know, it just rained for 40 days and 40 nights and it was over. But it's interesting, if you study the, kind, the, the account of the flood, what you'll discover is that the maximum time that Noah and his family were in the ark was a year and 17 days. That's a long time, a year and 17 days. The deluge, in other words, the flood lasted a year and 10 days. 
But it did rain for 40 days and 40 nights. It says in chapter 7, verse 12, the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. It says in verse 14, they had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Verse 17, for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth, but you and I both know that if it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, it's never going to, to flood the entire earth. However, the story is very clear that it was a universal flood. So here's the question, how is it even possible? And again, all of our orientation is in light of today, but the earth then is nothing like the earth is now. We know for a fact that the atmosphere was different. Up to this point, it had never rained. The geological setup was altogether different. In fact, here's a, this is actually a book that I had in college as a PE major. One of the classes I had to take was physics. In those days, it was a scroll, but now they've actually turned it into a book. And, uh, but it's entitled The Genesis Flood, and it's from a scientific perspective, and it, is, it really is intriguing reading. But this is what they write. A global rain containing, uh, continuing for 40 days as described in the Bible would have required a completely different mechanism for its production than is available at the present day. He writes this, if all the water in our present atmosphere were suddenly precip precipitated, in other words, it all just rained out, wrung out like a sponge, it would only suffice to cover the ground to an average depth of less than two inches. Very likely, in order to accommodate the great mass of water and permit the land to appear again, great tectonic movements and isostatic adjustments would have to take place, forming the deep ocean basins and troughs and elevating the continents. And then he kind of gives us a description of what must have happened. Great volcanic explosions and eruptions are clearly implied in the statement, and this is from Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, quote, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, end quote. This must mean that great quantities of liquids, perhaps liquid rocks and magmas, as well as water, probably steam, had been confined under great pressure below the surface rock structure of the earth since the time of its formation, and that this mass now bursts forth through great fountains, probably both on land and under the seas. By analogy with present phenomena associated with volcanism, there must also have been great earthquakes and tsunamis generated throughout the world. These eruptions and waves would have augmented the flood waters as well as accomplished great amounts of geologic work directly. And that is why it's so difficult for us to try to determine the age of the earth. I mean, the, the incredible, during the flood, the incredible changes that occurred geologically. There's this whole upheaval of strata. I think it's beyond our imaginations. Continents are being twisted, shaped, pushed up, sections of the ocean leveled out, great troughs formed in the ocean basin. And this went on for over a year. And the water finally receded and the ark rested. It came to rest on Mount Ararat. It's an incredible study. You should read about it. And then in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, it says God placed a rainbow in the sky as a promise that it would never happen again. Chapter 10, I think, is actually one of the most interesting chapters in the book of Genesis. But if you were just reading through the book of Genesis, you would think it's Dull City. In fact, it's one of those you read like the first three verses and say, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and go to the next chapter, right? But literally, it traces the genesis of the nation by tracing the lineage of Noah's three sons. He had Japheth, he had Ham, he had Shem. Let me just say Shem. Let me say something about each one. The Japhethites were the largest of the three, and they are, for the most part, the northern people. We would say the Russian, Indo-European people. In fact, most of the people who now populate 
the, the Western Hemisphere could trace their roots to Japheth. And if you do the study, get into chapter 10, chapter 11, you'll discover that there are actually 14 nations of people that came from Japheth. And these descendants, these are the Greeks, these are the Europeans, they distinguish themselves as intellects. They distinguish themselves as thinkers and philosophers of the ancient world. Then came the Hamites. The Hamites were referred to in scripture as the Southern people. There's actually a reference to the Hamites in Psalm uh, 105 verse 23. The Psalmist is talking about Israel. Israel entered Egypt. Jacob resided as a foreigner in the land of Ham. So the descendants of Ham, we know, were in Egypt. And that's from his son, Miserain. He actually, his descendants ended up in Egypt. He had another son named Cush, and his descendants ended up in what we now know as the Sudan and Ethiopia. He had another son, Put, just like it sounds, P-U-T, and his descendants ended up in what we now know as Libya. Canaan was his fourth son. The Canaanites, none of them exist today because of a curse. You can read about it in Genesis but again, they were the southern people. And the Hamites, the descendants of Ham, were characterized not as intellectuals, but as practical and creative. For example, they developed the alphabet. They put together the basic blocks of civilization as we know it today. Things like the measuring systems, things like mathematical tables. These things can be traced to the Hamites. They were creative, technical, practical people. And then you get Shem, and with him you get the roots of religion. In fact, the major Middle Eastern religions find their roots in Shem because ultimately from this line, from Shem, you get to Abraham. Abraham had two sons. Ishmael was the beginning of the Arab race. Isaac was the beginning of the Jewish race. From Ishmael, we get Islam. From Isaac, we get Judaism. And through the Jews, we get Christ and we get Christianity. So you can trace this all back to Shem. It's a fascinating study. You should look at that on your own. The Tower of Babel was built in chapter 11. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved east, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, and the people that the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, again, a reference to the Trinity, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. So you're starting to see how people were moved out, how languages were formed. But in chapter 11, there's a twisting of culture. It's no longer a unilingual world. Now it's a multilingual world. All kinds of changes take place. How it happened, we're not given the details. It's not revealed. Only that it happened. But we do know that when we get to chapter 12, God chose Abraham to bring a nation of people through called the Hebrews. By the way, just so you know, when God picked Abraham, he was an idol worshiper. His father, Terah, was an idolater. Nevertheless, because God is sovereign, he chose him and he made a covenant with him sovereignly. He said, I'm going to go with the Jews. He could have said, I'm going to go with the Puerto Ricans or the French or the Germans or the Italians. But he says, no, I'm, I just, you know what? I'm going to go with the Jews because he can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. 
And so it says in verse one of chapter 12, the, the Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now this is a key phrase. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse you. That's a promise from God. You go against Israel, God says, you're gonna have problems with me. We need to always remember that, right? By the way, we were just there. It's, it's a little sliver of land, a finger of land, 17 miles across at its narrowest point. Seven million people surrounded by 21 nations who would love nothing more to annihilate it, to wipe it off the face of the earth. But yet when you're there, you discover it is without a doubt the most productive. In fact, it's probably more productive than all of those countries put together when you see what God has brought up out of that desert. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse you. My favorite t-shirt I saw in Israel was, don't worry, America, Israel has your back. See, I think that's a great t-shirt. Like we're in this together, right? And as Americans, that's very, very important to us. And then it goes on to say, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What God was saying, Abraham, I'm gonna bring through your descendants, the Messiah. And he's gonna save the world. And everybody can be reconciled back to me through the Messiah. Jesus Christ, and every person, every family in the world can be blessed. And then so you go from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, also called Israel. He had 12 sons. Joseph was one. The brother sold him into slavery. Remember the story? He ends up in Egypt, is elevated to the role of prime minister. He is making, taking care of Egypt. He's storing away food because back in Goshen, there's a famine in the land and Jacob and the boys have to go to Egypt. And all of a sudden we get into the story of the Exodus. We'll talk about that next time. But what important lessons do we learn from a survey of Genesis? Here's the first one. Just like Adam and Eve, we were all created by God. Psalm 139 says that hey, we have a body built by God. We have a temperament made by God. We have certain interests inside of us that were placed there by God. In other words, God put you together just the way he wanted you to be. God put me together just the way he wanted me to be. God gave me this face, this body. He gave me this build, this size. He gave me my skin color. He gave me my look, my temperament. He gave me my lack of hair. We were all created by God. But this is what I want you to understand. God doesn't make junk. And you may be here and you may struggle with low self-esteem. I mean, we do live in a culture that ties our self-esteem to our looks and to our performance. But the reality is, every one of us, we're God's artwork. Every one of us, we're a masterpiece hand-created by God. And to be honest with you, that is the only thing that gives us significance. That is the only thing that we can find security. And think about it, everything else in life comes and go. Whatever you do now, you probably will not always be able to do. And if you find your security in that, you're going to lose it one day. How you look now, you will not always look that way. You're gonna get old, you're gonna get wrinkled, and if your security's tied up in your looks, that's a problem. You can make a lot of money, but you could lose it all. If that's where your security is, that's a problem. Our security and our self-esteem is grounded in the fact that God and his hands, they made us. It's true of every one of us. It's true of everyone around us. In other words, when you look into the eyes of another person, regardless of how you feel about them, you better be careful how you treat them that's why there's no room for racism. There's no room for discrimination. There's no room for judging. Because you know what? Every person you lock eyes with is a masterpiece that God created with his own hands. We learn that from the book of Genesis. Here's the second thing we learn. Just like Adam and Eve, we are fallen creatures. 
fallen at birth. Doctrine of depravity, sin entered into the bloodstream. We just carry on what our parents and grandparents passed down to us. It's called sin. And whenever there's sin, there has to be judgment. The soul that sins, it dies. We sin, we die. Unless God rescues us. In the book of Genesis, God used Noah. Noah found favor. The word literally means grace. In our eyes, in our lives, it's Jesus Christ. And so God gave us his son to be the substitute for our sins so that we could, figuratively speaking, come into the ark. And through Jesus Christ and his blood, he gets us through the flood. And we're safe on the inside, but we're lost on the outside. But if we're on the inside, understand it was God's grace that brought us in. Let me just say this. Maybe you come to church all the time, but you've never gotten this salvation thing yet. It's always hard for me when I go to Israel and I think there's, there's 7 million Jews, 90% of the Jews who live in Israel are atheists. They don't believe anything about God. And I'm like, it's right there under their noses. Can't they see it? But you know, for some of you, it's right under your nose and you still haven't accepted God's gift of his son who died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be restored and reconciled back into a God, back to a relationship with God. It's by grace. It's by grace. And it's available to you. But you have a free will, right? There's one other thing I noticed as I was wrapping this up the other day in my office. When you read through the book of Genesis, you can't help but see how God sovereignly selects certain people thousands of years ago that have begun to shape our lives so that we could be brought into God's plan. You got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob, you got Joseph. See, that was then. This is now. And when you think about it, as we sit here today, and maybe you've never thought about it this way, we're the Abrahams, we're the Isaacs, we're the Jacobs, we're the Josephs of our day. And now God wants to use us as a part of his plan, and he wants to use us like little flashlights in a dark world. And our message is simply this, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus is speaking the Sermon on the Mount. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Not give glory to you, give glory to your Father in heaven. That is simply our job as followers of Jesus Christ, and it's to shine the light. And one of the things Laura and I realized when we were on this trip, and I actually love to share the gospel with people, but we have the answer to life, and we have the answer to life after the grave. And most of us aren't shining the light. When's the last time you shined the light? When's the last time you pointed someone toward Jesus? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You want to get to the Father? You're going to have to go through me. Who in your life needs you to shine the light? Now, next week, we're not going to look at Exodus. Next week is Father's Day. And I promise you men, see, I'll let you have it on Mother's Day. I promise you on Father's Day, I'm going to talk to the ladies about the top three needs of men. So guys, get the ladies here, and I'll do the heavy lifting. And we're going to talk about what the needs are so that we can understand and relate to each other better. But men, next week's just your week to sit back and relax. And I'm going to let the women have it. You know what I'm saying? Can I get a witness? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Okay. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't. That's wrong. That's sinful. But anyway, let's pray. Father, you're so awesome. And we're beginning to see the origin. We're seeing that when man was just a few days into existence, you already had to begin to work out your redemptive plan. And we're going to see it carried out in Exodus because every one of us wants to be free.
And we're going to see that you're a God of freedom. We're going to see it in Leviticus. We're going to see all the things that are leading to the ultimate sacrifice in your son, Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy, the messages that we need to know, that we need to put on our foreheads, on our doorposts to pass down to our children. Numbers and Deuteronomy, just how, how that we can sometimes make the decisions that have had incredibly horrible consequences. But these are all lessons that we can learn in these first few books of the Bible. And I pray that we'd be open and we would hear and we would begin to understand the origin of our story of faith, our journey of faith. I look forward to see what you're going to teach us over the next few weeks.